The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Well, as we begin our time in God's Word this morning, would you please open up your Bible with me to Psalm 46. Open up to Psalm 46. When your personal world is in upheaval, Psalm 46 is a wonderful psalm to know and consider. And when it seems like the entire globe is on fire and careening towards destruction, Psalm 46 is a great meditation for our hearts. As you turn there, look at the opening three verses with me of this wonderful Old Testament Hebrew song. It says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains quake at its swelling pride. According to the psalmist, those who have made God their refuge and strength will not fear even if the earth should change. When there's upheaval on the earth, God's people need not worry and fret. It would be fair to say that we are living in a day and age where global change is increasingly normative. The technological interconnectedness of the world has made societal transformation not only possible, but really constant. Bedrock foundational assumptions and presuppositions are really being challenged and rethought and recalibrated. And as a result, fear creeps in and overwhelms people, overtakes people. Sadly, this is all too common with Christians as well, perpetually in a state of worry and fret about the world. There's a constant scouring of headlines, intaking of all kinds of media, the feeling of needing to be informed on every front with this ongoing fear that there must be something going on and you might not be aware of it. So we have this fear. And in this sort of world, Psalm 46 is a needed corrective. Look at verse 6 in the psalmist. It says this, The nations made an uproar and the kingdoms tottered He raised his voice, the earth melted. Yahweh of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come behold the works of Yahweh, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. When the Lord so desires, all he needs to do is raise his voice and the earth melts. And the psalmist invites us to take a close look at the desolations that the Lord has wrought upon the earth. Earthquakes and hurricanes and mighty crushing falls of snow, avalanches. Look at what he has done. He is the sovereign ruler, the sovereign actor behind all acts. And no one is able to ward off the mighty hand of God. God is in utter control of all that happens on the face of the earth. He is never surprised, never caught off guard. God never learns something new. He knows all things and he ordains all things. 
And our response in light of God's sovereign control over all things is given in verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. So God will be exalted. In the end, God will have the praise that he deserves. One way or another, Yahweh will receive the worship and the adoration that is due his name. So stop striving. Stop all your anxious worrying. And the psalmist then ends with a repeated repeated refrain, Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. You see, Psalm 46 points us to the truth that our conception of God is directly related to our experience of fear and anxiety. The more that we understand the God that is there or the God who is there, the more we understand his power and his sovereignty, the the more God becomes our refuge and strength, or a real, tr- a real strength and refuge in times of trouble. So come what may in this life, we know that, the, that Yahweh, the God of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And yet, if we're honest, how quickly we lose sight of this. Some trial comes along in our life, some difficulty of one kind or another, and the temptation is to be drawn inward. Uh, Thoughts about ourselves begin to dominate our minds. We give little thought to serving or ministering to others, and our theology begins to drift into the far recesses of our minds. We may say we believe great and glorious things about God, but those truths, those glorious doctrines, seemingly go strangely missing when we encounter pain or or suffering. We often fail to believe what we know to be true when we're suffering. When we're suffering, what we know is true is somehow as far from our minds. And in the place that faith should occupy, fear naturally steps in. And we become fearfully consumed with the trial or the difficulty that we're in, and the flesh sort of takes its cue. And this is why it's so easy to sin in the midst of trials. It's so easy to sin in the midst of relational conflict or in the midst of some kind of suffering. Sinning just becomes so natural at those times. I see this in myself, of course, when I'm stressed or anxious about some thing in life. Perhaps I'm also tired from a long week. And then one of our children, say, suddenly breaks something or accidentally spills something. And then, sadly, my propensity is to say something sharp or to react or overreact in frustration and and anger. And this sin only reveals a lack of faith. I know, theoretically, that God sovereignly ordained from the beginning of the world for that cup of milk that I just poured to be slipped off the table and fall to the ground. God planned that very thing from the foundation of the world. I know that, but not in the moment. In the moment of my small, insignificant trial, my theology goes out the window. And of course, the bigger the trial, the greater the temptation to sin. See, trials and adversity in our lives is where our theology must really come to life where there should be faith and trust 
in the God of Jacob, sadly, too often there's anger or fear. And then we begin to ask foolish questions about God. Does God really care about me? Or maybe we ask, is, is God mad at me? Is God punishing me? Or maybe we say, oh, there must be some defect in God. He must not be powerful enough to intervene in this situation to prevent this thing from happen, happening to me. You see, it's in the trials that really our true theology, our true thoughts about God it shows up. Can we act upon what we say we believe when we are suffering? Or do we resort back to the sinful patterns of the past? True spiritual maturity is revealed in the midst of adversity and hardship. And how we respond in the midst of our worst days and our difficult days really tells us a lot about how sanctified we truly are. As James points out, trials test our faith. Trials reveal the faith that is there. And this morning, in returning to Mark chapter 4, we observe one such trial in the life of the disciples. And their response to the trial, and Jesus' response to their response, has been recorded in Scripture, inscripturated in God's holy word for us to see and observe and to learn from. So if you would, please turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark to see this trial in the life of the disciples. Uh, this morning we come to one of the most iconic stories in the life of Jesus, Jesus calming the Sea of Galilee. It's an absolutely wonderful account from the life of our Lord. And in some sense today, I just want to get out of the way of this wonderful passage. Uh, may the Lord take his word and apply it to our hearts as we consider it together, considering Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. Please look with me near the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 35, and follow along in your copy of God's word. On that day when the evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and the sea. Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Being that this is a narrative account, I would just like us to walk through this passage step by step, beginning with first, just to look at an exhausting day. That's what I'm calling this first section, an exhausting day in verses 35 and 36. Look at verse 35 again with me. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. The that day of this, of this verse refers to all that has transpired at least in chapter 4. According to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Jesus had gone out to the sea to sit in a boat to teach a very large crowd. 
He spoke to the masses in the forms of parables. Look, if you would, at verses 33 and 34 to see how Jesus operated. And with many such parables, he spoke. He was speaking to them, speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So Jesus was not only teaching the crowds in parables, but he was also privately teaching his own disciples. He was explaining everything to his own disciples. In the parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 13, there verse 36 informs us that he left the seaside and went into a home to explain things privately to his disciples, to explain the meaning of the parables. So at the very least, we could say that this day of our Lord's was filled with teaching, teaching in different settings. But based upon Matthew chapter 13, verse 1, there's perhaps reason to believe that this day, the that day of Mark 4, 35, actually begins back in Mark 3, 20. And that would mean the day also included Jesus being insulted and blasphemed by that delegation of scribes who came down from Jerusalem. It would have also included then the interaction that happened with Jesus' family. So Mark has likely given us in detail much much of the events that unfolded in one particular day from the life of our Lord. And on this particular day, when evening came, Jesus directed his disciples to a new location, and he says to them, let us go over to the other side. He's here speaking to the disciples, the closest referent to the them. He's speaking to them would be found in verse 34. That's the disciples, the 12. The other side refers to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, of course, They were setting out from the western shoreline at Capernaum, and apparently he desired to take them to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, to the area of the Gerasenes. That's where we'll find him in chapter 5, getting out of the boat. And by boat, that journey or that leg is about five miles away. The the country of Gerasenes was known as Gentile land. And we're not told why Jesus wanted to go there, but Naturally, we suspect that Jesus desired some reprieve from the overwhelming crowds that he experienced there in Capernaum. Besides it being Gentile land, there was no major cities there. And at the very least, we'd say he needed rest. He needed relief from the crowds. Verse 36 continues, Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was. Uh, Other boats were with him. Now, this is an interesting verse that provides a little bit more background information for us. Strictly speaking, leaving the crowd could also mean sending the crowd away or sending them off, telling them it's best to go home now. It could also mean that. The word can mean either. But regardless, the crowd was left behind. The disciples take Jesus along with them into the boat. Likely, some of the disciples were the owners of this fishing boat, so naturally they took him along in their boat. Apparently, as we'll see, Jesus had no intention of manning the oars in the boat. The text says they took him along with him in the boat just as he was. Just as he was. The wording is challenging here, but it appears that this suggests that Jesus went without making any preparations. Just as he was, Jesus went. Jesus joined the disciples in the boat after a long day of teaching without making extensive arrangements. He just went just as he was. 
And they set out for the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Mark also notes that there were other boats there with them. None of the other Gospels record that note. Other boats. The crowds, we are told, have been sent home or they have left. So I suspect this refers to some of the other followers of Jesus who were not a part of the Twelve. There were more than just 12 who were keenly interested in following Christ. In verse 10 of Mark chapter 4, these followers were, these followers were referred to as being that very thing, followers, but they're distinct from the 12 and they're distinct from the crowds. So perhaps some of these followers, learning that Jesus was going over to the other side of the sea, started to get into their boats as well. Although Mark will not mention those other boats again. And as Jesus stepped into the boat, and as they set out for the other side of the sea, one wonders what the sky looked like. What did the conditions look like on that day? I mean, some of these men had spent nearly their entire lives fishing these waters. I mean, they would have been aware of the time of day, the season of the year, and perhaps something of the wind and temperature that would have been on that day. Maybe there would have been some concern about what if... What if a storm would arise on the sea while we're out there? But they got into the boat nonetheless, and the further they rowed out into the sea, and the darker the sky became overhead, likely there would have been a greater growing concern in their hearts. But it was, after all, Jesus' idea to cross the sea, and they, after all, did what Jesus said. They had known enough at this point to not question his plans. He said, let's go over, so that was it. Their responsibility was to crew the boat, and they knew how to do that well. Having never been to the Sea of Galilee personally, I can't say for myself, but they say that storms arise rather quickly on the Sea of Galilee. But I can't imagine a storm coming upon them so suddenly without any warning at all. At least the experienced fishermen of the group could have sensed the pending danger uh, the changing cloud formations, the shifting wind patterns, and the steadily growing size of waves, it must have all indicated something to them. And maybe some of them naturally began to voice their concerns to one another. Ah, oh, John, it's not looking very good. Um, maybe we should turn back. And nervously looking over their shoulder, knowing it was Jesus' idea to come out here, Maybe they were contemplating what they could say to Jesus to perhaps avoid a coming crisis. But alas, in turning back to their master, they quickly discovered that he was asleep. Best just to carry on, keep at the rowing, keep at the oars. Perhaps at this point, one by one, the other boats that were following started to turn back for the western shoreline, knowing the seas look a little too rough for us. Maybe we should return Again, we're not told what came of them. But this brings us then to verse 37. Look at it with me. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. I'm calling this a fierce storm. Second step here, a fierce storm. In this passage, in selective location, Mark, uh, the writer, repeatedly uses the present tense. And in the Greek language, sometimes the present tense is used in descriptive narratives to, with, with the goal of transporting the reader back into the very scene, to make it come to life, to be more vivid. 
So it's as if the grammar transports us back into the boat here. Technically, we call this the historic use of the present tense. In English Bibles, we do well to translate them in the simple past tense, but they are in reality present tense in, in the Greek. In some Bibles, like the New American Standard or the Legacy Standard Bible, the translators leave a little asterisk in front of the verb to indicate the presence of a historic verb or historic present tense. That's helpful. So imagine yourself in this boat. The very grammar is inviting you to do that thing. A fierce gale of wind here in verse 37 or a fierce storm of wind came down upon the Sea of Galilee. In Luke's rendering of this account, in Luke 8 verse 23, he uses that phrase, the storm came down. The storm came down upon the sea. The wind would have come down out of the north. In the north sat Mount Hermon, or sits Mount Hermon, with an elevation soaring above 9,000 feet. The Sea of Galilee sits some 700 feet below sea level. And as is characteristic of that region, with the right mixing of temperature, storms come rushing down from Mount Hermon, gaining speed as they drop nearly 10,000 feet, coming down the Jordan River Valley and crash upon the surface of the waters. Deep ravines coming down the mountains served as just only funnel and channel, this hot wind coming down from the mountain, crashing down upon the waters. And inside the boat, Needless to say, the situation is getting obviously worse. Mark records that waves were repeatedly pounding the little, that little fishing vessel. It's an onslaught of waves. They keep coming. They, the waves were cresting with water coming in over the nose of the boat or perhaps over the nose inside of the boat. The boat for itself would have been about the size of two cars parked in front of each other. We can guess the size of the boat based upon an ancient boat that was discovered in the Sea of Galilee in 1986. A team of archaeologists excavated this boat out of thick clay in the shallows of the Sea of Galilee in 1986. It was a great discovery. It's been preserved in a museum. They call it the Jesus Boat. They estimated that the boat dates back to around the, sometime around the life of Christ. It's a 2,000-year-old ancient boat, ancient fishing vessel. And we could guess that Jesus' vessel might have been something similar. That boat was over 25 feet long. and was about 7 or 8 feet wide. and would have comfortably sat 13 men. And like the ancient boat discovered, their, their vessel most likely would have been uh, been entirely open on the interior, allowing, of course, waves to crush, crash over the short sides of the boat, allowing those cresting waves just to easily begin to spill into the boat. Mark says that the water was already filling the boat. So with each wave, the small vessel was taking on more and more water. Perhaps you know the feeling of being in a boat that's taking on water when your feet start to get wet with the water accumulating at the bottom of the boat. And the situation was becoming quite dangerous. A wave after wave crushing the little boat. And with each water, more, or with each wave, more water rolled over the sides of the boat, filling up the bottom of the boat, pushing them lower into the water. Straining at the oars, the men would have been desperately rowing. In good conditions, one can row 
roughly three miles an hour. So transversing the sea from Capernaum to the Gerasenes could have been done in less than two hours on normal conditions, but conditions were not good. And so I think it'd be fair to say by now it would be completely dark. So they're caught in the middle of the sea, in the dark, in a deadly storm. I don't know about you, but I would be terrified in such a setting, with each moment becoming increasingly desperate, increasingly fearful, fear surging through your body. Meanwhile, amazingly, Jesus is asleep. Look at verse 38. Jesus himself, note the emphasis, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushions, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So I'm calling this step three a desperate reproach. I might say a desperate insult from the disciples. So here's Jesus in the stern of the boat, in the back of the boat, and he's asleep on a cushion. Now, likely this would have been the cushion that would have been used as padding for the wooden seats for the men to sit upon. No one likes to sit on hard wood, even today. So the stern of the boat was where Jesus is told to be, and it's likely there was slightly elevated in the back of the boat, so perhaps the water that was coming in had not reached yet Jesus in the back of the boat where he was sleeping on his makeshift pillow. Exhausted from a long day, Jesus slept. And the only way that this seems to make sense is to acknowledge that Jesus must have been utterly exhausted from all of his ministry, this breakneck speed of ministry pace that he kept. But note the contrast between Jesus and the anxious crew. Even the experienced fishermen among them were terrified by the life-threatening situation they were in. And Jesus is fast asleep. His human nature, we might say, needed rest. And he found refreshment there in the back of the boat. But eventually there was no option but to wake Jesus. They had seen enough of Jesus' miracles to know that probably he could do something. And so instinctively, instinctively, they knew that he could help, so they frantically woke him up. And they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The text says they, but I doubt they said this in unison. My guess is that this was the, actually the voice of one man, but the others agreed with this desperate cry for help. Uh, there probably was a few intense minutes that went by in which everyone in the boat desperately wanted to wake up Jesus, but they didn't. A few, a few nervous moments where they just sat there and kept rowing. They wanted to wake up Christ, but they didn't know if they should. And then when finally someone had enough courage to wake him up, then once he's up, now everybody's talking. I bet everyone was hollering at Jesus at that point. Matthew and Luke record some of the other words that were said to Jesus in this particular moment. In Matthew, the men say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. It's a cry for help. In Luke, they say, master, master, we are perishing. Those are just desperate cries for help. Help us. But Mark records something a little bit different here. He says, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It, it, too, is a call for help, but it's also a definite reproach. It's a cry for help packaged with a cutting insult. And the implication is that Jesus already knew they were in trouble, but that he didn't care for them. Do you not care? And the words reveal a resentment directed at Jesus for his apparent indifference to their peril. Do, do you not care about us, Jesus? 
If you recall, Mark records his gospel under the, under the close tutelage of Peter. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. He was not on the boat that day, but Peter was. And Peter informed Mark for much of what he wrote. And, and judging by some of the other brash comments that Peter made, this comment seems to fit right at home in Peter's mouth. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And we certainly can't be too critical of Peter here. It was, after all, a life-threatening situation. Peter did not question Jesus' ability to intervene. He knew Jesus had the power to do something. But Peter, if it was Peter after all, Peter did question Jesus' love for them. Again, do you not care? And with such a question, it really strikes at the core. It attacks something very central in God. Whenever, whoever made this desperate reproach, surely they regretted it later. Surely they regretted these words. Jesus would soon enough demonstrate his love for his own, and he would do it in the most emphatic way. I mean, Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if one wants to know how much God cares for them, look no further than the cross. There we find the demonstration of God's care for us, his concern for us. God the Father gave up his only son for us. And God the Son in obedience laid down his life for the Father. So Peter soon enough would learn this lesson. He himself would be the one who would write, using the same exact word, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5.7. So now Jesus has been awakened and he's up. So we've seen this, how this exhausting day unfolds in a fierce storm and then this desperate reproach. And now Jesus awake issues a pair of rebukes. That's what I'm calling it, a pair of rebukes in verses 39 and 40. Look at verse 39. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still, and the wind died down and became perfectly calm. So Jesus is now awake. He's either sitting up or perhaps he st stood up in the boat, and he addresses the wind and the sea. And only Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, do we find these words recorded. But he, Jesus says, hush, or, or be silent. He says, be still. And immediately, the wind and the sea bow their heads in humble submission to Christ. Immediately they stopped. And the grammar here indicates definitive action. The phrase, the wind died down, I think is a little bit misleading. It just suggests a, a slow calming of the wind. But the idea here is a complete cessation of the wind. The wind stopped. The wind was suddenly gone. And the sea becomes perfectly still, uh, dead calm, very calm. As you probably know, there's something magical in the serenity of a perfectly calm lake or a perfectly calm sea. And so the contrast is almost unfathomable here. To be in the middle of a deadly storm in one minute, in one second, and then slowly adrift in the midst of a very still sea the next. Oh, just to have been there, to seen this. 
to observe that still water on this day. And imagine in the deafening silence that would have been after Jesus rebuked the wind and we. I wonder if his words echoed even on those still waters. Perhaps the only noise was just the noise of the water sloshing around in the boat among the men's feet. Maybe water running down the oars that were now out of the water and slowly plunking into those still waters beneath. Just silence. And imagine the emotional intensity of that moment. It really can't be understated. The 12 men would have just sat there absolutely aghast, speechless. And then Jesus addresses them. He's reserved a rebuke for them as well. Look at verse 40. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you have no faith? Some versions translate Jesus' question, why are you so cowardly? I don't think that's the best way to translate it into the English. It, it suggests a lack of boldness and maybe too much of an insult. They were naturally frightened in the storm. I mean, a capsized boat in the middle of the sea and these conditions could have easily led to their deaths. But Jesus rebukes them for their fear. Why are you fearful? And the problem was that they had lost trust in him. It says, how is it that you have no faith? Or better, I think, with the word still, do you still have no faith? Uh, on some level, we knew that we know that they had faith in the Messiah. They knew who he was. They had seen him heal countless people. They had heard John the Baptist identify him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They knew these things. Earlier this chapter, they themselves were in the inside group that got the special explanations of the parables. So they had some faith. I mean, Jesus chose each one of them specifically for ministry. They had faith, but their faith was weak, we might say. They had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They were willing to follow him, but there was still much that they did not believe about him. They did not believe he was the Lord of nature. They did not, they did not know that he could silence the wind and the waves. They knew that somehow he could harness the power of God to cast out demons and to heal people, but to, to tell the wind to stop, to control nature itself, uh, they did not fully believe that. And then the result of this entire scene kind of culminates in verse 41. I'm just calling it elevated worship. Verse 41, look at it with me. And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? A very wooden translation of this verse would be, they became afraid with great fear. There's only one other time in Scripture where we see a similar coupling of words to describe fear, and it occurs in Luke 2.9, when the angels reveal themselves to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. And in English, that verse reads, And an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. A similar worshipful awe and fright and terror would have characterized the shepherds as characterized the men in the boat on this day. And so on this perfectly calm Sea of Galilee, sitting on those wooden benches inside this fishing boat, the 12 men are now greatly afraid. And they were afraid before when the sea was raging, but now they, they're more afraid. They're greatly afraid, and it's almost a, a different kind of fear. Here it's a reverential fear, a, a humbled 
trembling in the presence of the divine. Those who would have been bold enough to speak, whisper quietly to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Who who then is this? In light of what just happened, who, who then is this? In Mark, 20, in Mark 1, or in Mark chapter 1, we saw earlier that the, the demons obeyed Christ and did so readily. Powerful demons were driven out and diseases were driven out with a single word. He spoke the mysteries of the kingdom of God to them, but this is a whole different level. See, these disciples had much yet to learn about Christ. And this incident opened up their minds, it opened up their eyes to the further glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely only one who was more than human could silence the wind and the sea and make it obey him. Again, they ask, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Interestingly, Scripture reveals to us repeatedly who it is that commands the wind and the sea. As we read earlier this morning in Psalm 65, David tells us plainly that it is the God of our salvation who stills the roaring seas and the roaring of their waves. That's Psalm 65, verse 8. In Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9, it says something similar. O Lord of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Again, those are words addressed to Yahweh, God the Father. It is Yahweh of hosts who rules the swelling sea. But on this day in the Sea of Galilee, it was Jesus who was commanding the wind and the waves and the sea. Psalm 127 and verse 29, again, it's Yahweh who caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. God himself informed Job in Job chapter 38 that it was he who issues the orders to the sea. There in verses 10 and 11, Yahweh places a boundary on the sea. He sets a bolt over the doors of the sea to contain it. Yahweh says, says, thus far you shall come to the sea, but you shall go no further, and there your proud waves stop. So this isn't a territory. This is the realm of Yahweh's power to control the sea. But now it's Jesus in absolute authority reigning over the sea. And the message is clear. There's God in the boat. God's in the boat, and that's why they are afraid. And such great fear is appropriate, knowing that God is sitting in the boat. And like many others in Scripture who encounter God, these men are undone in the boat. They're very afraid. But if we return to Jesus' rebuke for a moment, he says to them, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? Really, the antidote to fear is faith, faith and trust in God. When you know and worship a sovereign God who you are convinced is in control of all things that happens in the life, really, what is there to fear? The disciples should have known that this storm would have not led to their death. They were traveling with the Messiah. And the Messiah had purposes to fulfill. He was going to Jerusalem. His life would be laid down. They should have known that Jesus is going to do something to preserve our life here. He's going to do something. God would see to it that they were preserved through this storm. Where was their faith? They should have believed. It's much like when 
Abraham was called to sacrifice his only son in Genesis chapter 22. In faith, Abraham believed God as they left for that mountain. And he told his servants there in Genesis 22, we will return to you. We don't know what that means, but somehow Abraham knew, I'm, I'm going to go, and if God wants me to sacrifice my son, I'll do it, and then maybe God will raise him from the dead. And both of us are coming back here because God has special plans for my son. And in faith, Abraham operated. And it seems that's what the disciples failed to do. They failed to operate with that faith. Perhaps they should have had that same faith here as Abraham had. But as we come to think about our own lives, in our own lives, we don't have that guarantee. And the storms that we face in this life and the difficulties and the challenges, they may, they may very well end up in death. We could die. We could have something happen to us this very day that takes our own life. And so perhaps in reading this account today and hearing this, you say, yeah, yeah, it would be great to have Jesus in the boat with me. That'd be great. I could have faith then if he was right behind me calming seas and doing these things. But I don't have that. We have no guarantee that God will intervene in any of our trials to spare our life, to spare us from great pain or great loss or personal death. Sooner or later, we must admit that death will come for all of us unless Christ returns. But our faith does not rest upon the promise of preservation of life here and now. Our faith rests upon the promise of eternal life. You see, God may call us home at any moment. God may take one of our loved ones home at any moment. God may ordain some event that takes us to glory today. He has every right to do that, but our eyes must be fixed on the eternal horizon. Trials test our faith, and they reveal the faith that we have. Do we believe in the promises of God? Do we believe that we have eternal life? Do we believe that he will be good on his word to us? So when we consider here Messiah Jesus seated on this fishing boat, divinely commanding the wind and the sea, we are reminded of the power of God, and we are reminded of his power to keep us for all eternity. Not to keep us in this life per se, but to keep us for all eternity. In John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus told Martha, who was grieving the loss of her brother, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Amazing words. Those who believe in me will live even if he dies. And those who live and believe in me will never die. Both things are true. There's a sense in which we will die, of course, earthly death, physical death. There's a sense in which those who believe will experience eternal life, will receive the gift of eternal life. You see, our tendency is to be fixated on this life. That's where our, our eyes get trapped. But Christ promises towards us go beyond this life. And that is why they require faith. So by faith, we cling to the hope of eternal life. By faith, we say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And by faith, we cast all of our anxiety upon him because we know he cares for us, even if it leads to our death. He cares for us. Even in our death, he cares for us. By faith, we remind ourselves 
that he who did not spare his only son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not freely also give us all things? He did not spare his only son. So yes, if, if Christ tarries, one day some trial will overtake you. Some difficulty may be the final act in your life here upon the earth. Someday that event is coming, maybe it'll be natural age, we don't know, but death is coming for all of us. And on that day when God calls us home, all of those eternal promises will be found all the more true. All that, on that day, not one single promise of God will fail for the believer. For the believer, they'll be, rush, they'll be ushered into realms of glory forever. All of God's promises coming to fruition. It's when faith becomes sight. Therefore, in light of that, we will not fear. We need not fear, even though the earth should change. Even though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. We have a God who cares for us, a sovereign God, a God who's in control of all things. He will care for us. He'll provide for us. He's a God who watches over the sparrow. I was reminded of an old poem from the 1850s. Elizabeth Cheney says this, Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Isn't that true? Heavenly father who cares for us and loves us and gave up his only son for us. We have a father who, who loves us greatly. So let's go to him in prayer.